it wasn't so long ago that the healthcare quality improvement movement really got down to serious work improving care and addressing defects. Among the many motivations, correcting intolerable rates of harm and drop balls, and a desire to create enduring initiatives and improvement cultures for the workforce and the people who'd soon follow into these jobs. But as the QI movement in healthcare matures, some new questions are arising about its direction and motivations. Some argue that improving patient care and the mission behind it are being impeded, not aided, by too many performance payment incentives, business and financial preoccupations, boatloads of measures, and inspection. So what do you think? Are we tilting in the wrong direction or a kind of a problematic direction? What can help? We're glad you're joining us for this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're there for you biweekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So we're taking a look at the overall direction for QI because it's important, and also because IHI's now President Emeritus and Senior Fellow Don Berwick raised some serious concerns about this direction in his most recent keynote at the IHI National Forum. As Don often does, he paired his concerns with some new ideas and recommendations, and we're about to hear from Don and equally from a new physician Don knows well, his daughter, Jessica. Is she worried about the same things? Are you? So let's get right to it after IHI's John Gothier reminds all of you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the send to bar when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I have provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mitch. Thanks, John. And we'll turn to the chat and your questions and comments at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets so we can engage others in our conversation on social media. So to our guests, here in the studio with me is Don Berwick. He's IHI's founder and president and CEO until 2010 when Don went to Washington to serve as administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Don is currently president emeritus and senior fellow at IHI. He's as busy as ever offering strategic guidance to IHI and many others. He's doing a lot of writing and speaking. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Madge. And joining us by phone, a real treat in the midst of her busy day in healthcare is Don's daughter, Jessica Berwick. She's a board-certified internist and hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Also an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, Jessica also serves on the newly created Committee on the Advancement of Women at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thanks for joining this conversation, Jessica, and welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Madge. All right, fantastic. All right, well, we're excited, so we're going to get right into it. Think of your questions and comments. Um, I did invite all of you to take a look and listen to Don's keynote. Um, if you had the time, it was uh, a link that was in all our copy. We can also perhaps throw that link up again, but don't try and listen to it now while we got Don here. Uh, that might be the stereo you don't need uh, <laughs> for this moment. Um, but Don's going to kind of reprise it, just uh, reprise it a little bit. Uh, in this uh, short fashion. 
um, he'll walk us through the central argument and themes of his talk. So I ask you, Don, what's gone wrong or may be going wrong in your estimation? Thanks a lot, Madge. And uh, I can't help say what a thrill and delight it is to have uh, this program gone with Jessica, you know, my not just my love, beloved daughter, but uh, uh, to see her emerge and grow into the kind of fantastic physician she is is great. So I really look forward to hearing Jessica's comments. Um, you know, in your introductory remarks and actually some of the stuff that w- went out about this webinar early on uh, was about the, the QI movement. That's not really what I meant to be talking about. The, I think the quality movement is robust. It's fine. It's doing great. It can do greater. This is about healthcare. It's about the direction of change and, and growth. In physics, you know, uh, for a lot of mechanical processes, heat is waste. Friction produces heat, which is waste. And that's kind of the metaphor that's been in my mind. We, we are just being eroded by friction in healthcare. It's like so much combat. I mean, obviously, the Affordable Care Act is in American political context, the you know one of the battlegrounds. But everything's a battleground: the electronic health record, pay for performance metrics, everything. We're fighting all the time. Maybe that's inevitable. But look, you know, we're here to produce healing for our populations. It's a noble enterprise, something we should be enjoying and, and, and thriving at. We're doing. We have good work to do. Why? Why? Why the? Why the waste? The waste of fighting. And, and I did fully admit my speech at the forum and well, the remarks I'll make briefly here are both a com- not completely formed. This is work in progress, which I'm glad to have the feedback we'll get, uh, Jessica's comments on the chat and, and later on. And it may be wrong. So I, I'm not sure I'm right. I'm out on a limb here, but let me just tell you what I was thinking. So why are we fighting? And, and as a kind of amateur historian, I said, well, we're fighting because there are two worldviews in conflict. That, that's how I see it. Um, one is very old. I call it Era One. It's it's the it's the it's the heritage of professionalism. Back to Hippocrates. You know, we uh, it's how I was trained as a doctor. My father was trained as a doctor to some extent. Jessica will say if she was, but it's about uh, the idea of the profession as noble, uh, uh, beneficent, uh, technically skilled, uh, and self-regulating. Elliot Friedson, the great sociologist of the, of the, 19, the 1900s. Friedson said a, a profession, profession of medicine, is a, is a work group that reserves to itself the right to judge the quality of what it does. Why the heck would society tell a work group, you can go ahead and judge your quality? We don't do that for anything else. We don't do it for our bakeries or our grocery stores. We judge the quality of the customer, not in professions. It's a work group that reserves to itself the right to judge the quality of what it does because it's beneficent, because it has skilled technical knowledge, because it will self-regulate and so on. That's what Friedson said. And the markers of that era, which is our basic roots, are trust, trust between the profession and the public, um, professional prerogative, which the prerogative, for example, to judge our own quality, um, the, the espousing of science and, and constant inquiry, uh, the idea of become a doctor through being mentored by other doctors, not by non-doctors, and uh, scientific roots. That's a belief system, very strong. That's how I was trained. Um, the problem was that as science, system sciences, uh, healthcare research developed in the 1900s, 1950, 60, 70, uh, the lights got turned on and it was a little bit ugly. You had Jack Winberg at Harvard and then Dartmouth looking at variation in practice. The variation was phenomenal, three or 400% difference in surgery rates with no connection to what patients need. We had the growing evidence on patient injuries and errors leading to the IOM report to Errors Human. 44,000, 98,000 people a year being killed by their care and hospital safety. We had um, evidence of indignities in care. We had growing evidence of inequities in care. Uh, and massive cost pressures that kind of took over the whole terrain because healthcare was taking money. And the evidence grew and grew and grew that money was not always being put to good use. Low value care was the problem. In fact, the, the recent studies show over and over again, 30, 40% of the efforts we put into healthcare are wasteful. Well, here's society, comes along in era one, says, dear profession, you can regulate yourself, judge your own quality. Now the society changes that. Well, hold a whole, wait a minute. If you're beneficent, how come there are 44,000 deaths? Uh, you know, if you're self-regulating, why did this cost spiraling out of control? Aren't you watching this? If you're full of technical mastery, how could you be varying 400% in rates of use of drugs or procedures? The deal is off, society said. Deal is off, at least some of society. It's not exactly the case because era one still is here. People love and trust their doctors usually. Doctors still feel proud of what they do, but there's a whole other wave, and that has different ideas. It's not nobility and 
prerogative, and trust me, it's accountability, scrutiny, metrics, incentives, pay for performance, and this this brooding doubt, you know, is healthcare getting away with something? Um, it is producing constant conflict. We're fighting about it. So metrics are proposed, and the healthcare system, no, no, you're not that, you know, you're, you can't measure what I do, or your measurements are silly. The, the the policymakers say doctors you're you know you're not being disclosive you're you're being self protective the doctors say we're not we're protecting patients we're not protecting you know and so, and you end up with this debate and I'm no I'm not naive I understand what this is coming from but but this isn't going to work now if we really want comp- redesigned care around family and patient needs uh, prevention chronic illness care um, uh, equity. I really don't see how this kind of combat produces reinvention, which is what we need, redesign. And so I started to think about the, the trajectory. What would be a different way to do it? And, and I'm, I'm going really out on a limb here. I'm saying neither of those belief systems can produce the care we need, not professional dominance, just trust me, I'm the doctor, and sit down and listen. Era one or era two, markets, combat, accountability. I, I, as I've said and written, I don't believe markets are the answer in healthcare. I don't think it will work, and I certainly don't think scrutiny and accountability and ticking boxes are going to work. So I tried to devise what I call era three. What would be if I could wave a wand and we would just pause and sit down and think about our belief systems? What would we change that would lead to a new kind of era, new kind of ethos. I propose nine steps. I see four are backing down steps. They're away from era one and era two, and five are leaning in. The four backing down ones are first measurement. This, the era two, especially this era of accountability, it has, it has led to immense amounts of metrics. Uh, you've seen some recent writings about that. Bob Walker's editorial in, in the New York Times, uh, the recent work at CMS to kind of reconsider the metrics for meaningful use. And uh, the, the announcement just a couple of days ago of an alignment of metrics between AHIP and, and CMS, that's good. I'm saying stop it. Let, let, let's back down for the amount of measurement. In fact, I proposed in my speech a 75% decrease in mandated measurements. I think with 25% we mandate today, you can get the same value if we're smart about it. Uh, Tom Lee and Michael Porter just had an article in the New England Journal proposing really moving to outcome metrics, which should be far fewer and much more helpful. The second backing down is about incentives. I just don't think that we should be working with these complex incentive systems for individuals, at least for individual physicians and nurses and others. Maybe organizational incentives, yes. But we are driving doctors and nurses crazy with very complex incentive systems they don't understand and don't speak to their intrinsic motivation. So I say abandon complex incentives for individuals. The third was uh, can we get our mind off the money for a minute? And this is – I think this sounds naive. It isn't. I think if you look at mature industries and the whole quality movement – Globally, it, it, there's an idea. The idea is if you meet the needs of the people you're helping, the money comes then. You don't focus on the top line or the money. You focus on the quality, which is the degree to which you're meeting need. And I believe healthcare needs that confidence and that, that agreement that we're going to work on suffering and its reduction and the money will follow. And I know that sounds – in a board of trustees or a finance system, that sounds naive. I think it's the right way to think. The fourth is around – or one, prerogative. Uh, my father, I remember – he was a doctor. He was a great doctor, I think. Uh, but he was the doctor. You did not talk back to him. You, you know, he said, "I'm the doctor. You, 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 I, I decide what happens." That's his era. The era three, I think, is much more, much more co-production, co-design. We're in it with patients. The the other five elements are then the step into what? Step into first improvement science. The, what what's going to replace markets or professional trust? You have to have an alternative. I have an alternative. Scientific improvement is the use of modern methods to look at what we do and continually get make them better. We know what that does. That's what IHI does. And, but it's not being treated with the seriousness and the discipline that it ought to. Most medical students don't ever hear anything about quality improvement. Uh, they could. That could be part of professionalism and leadership and, and management. Uh, transparency, although I, I'm, I'm arguing decrease mandatory metrics, the counter the, the other part of the plan is tr- – Turn all the lights on. Complete transparency. The, the amount of money and time we spend hiding stuff doesn't make any sense. So I say let's make everything known. If we know it, the world can know it, subject to privacy concerns. The item seven came from Bob Waller, former IHI chair of the board, former chair of Mayo Clinic, 
Dr. Waller said to me once, everything possible begins in civility. I, I have deeply believe that, and I think that the uh, the incivility you're now seeing in the Washington political arena, you watch what it does, well, how erosive it is of actual dialogue. I think there's a behavioral issue here. It has to do with the way we deal with each other. So I, I hope the day comes when I never, ever hear a doctor talk again about green eye shades or hurting or a manager talking about hurting cats. That is not okay. It's What's okay is saying, hey, we're here together. There's a patient on the other side of this system. We need to help them. The um, eighth idea is patient-centeredness, but taken to the full limit, where, where, where we open, we really do listen back from the people we're trying to help. In fact, I think they should be in governance and in control. And I particularly believe that has to do with excluded minorities and inequality. I, th I think it's time for us to listen in a much more thorough and complete way and, and actually, it's not even partnering, it's becoming servant servant leaders in which the patients and families are really the boss. And I've written believe that. And the last one, item nine, is kind of an orphan. I don't know where to park it, but it's it's about greed. Because of this clash in era one and era two and all sorts of other reasons we are, we are a greedy system. And uh, you can see it most famously now in the pharma world where the prices that are now being attached to drugs. I don't care how many economic army arguments you're going to throw at me. This is insane. These drug prices do not belong in the landscape of a compassionate society. And it's got to stop. And that's not just drugs. It has to do with the top-line driven attitudes in care. They're not generally bad people doing this, but we've trained ourselves to just ask for more, and it isn't going to work. And I think that uh, there have to be stops pl placed. I th obviously, the, the default is regulation, price controls, and serious regulations, saying you may not charge that. I'd prefer to see something short of that, and I call for a, a, volunteer, a volunteerism. I'd like to see the stakeholders meet and begin to articulate rules for fair pricing, fair profit, and stick by them with severe consequences or violation. But, but greed is killing us. It's killing our trust. We don't want to throw away R1 or R2. They both have aspects we should keep, uh, the, the professional pride, the scientific foundations, the beneficence, the idea of professional um, professionalism belongs from R1. We need to keep that, but not opacity, not self-protection, not, not domineering professionalism. And ERA 2 also has good aspects. I, I told you, I believe in transparency. I think payment is screwy and needs to change. We, you have to have payment, so let's just make it sensible so it supports the well-being of the people we're trying to help. And patient engagement. Those are all ideas from ERA 2, but not incivility, not combat, not over-measurement, not over-reliance on incentive, and, and not forgetting that relationships and healing are human relationships, not transactions. They're they're relationships, and relationship-based care is what we really want and need. So that's my brief. I could be wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. I just don't know where. <laughs> uh, but I think I'd like to raise that conversation about uh, a new era. I take the leap in my speech of calling, I say, era three needs a name. Era one's professional dominance. Era two is markets, accountability. Era three, what do you call it? I, I'm just going to call it the moral era in which we return to mission and relief of suffering as the unifying purpose. But I'm sure there's a better name. Well, if you have a, another name or an idea as you've been listening to Don, uh, feel free. You can chat that in or uh, let us know, and, and we'll relay that to Don. So thank you uh, for th – this is a condensed version of uh, what was truly an hour-long uh, plenary, and I view this WHI as also starting this discussion. Don has – each one of these areas that Don has pointed to could be a program unto itself. So bear with us as we at least sort of dig Again, uh, at this level. So I want to turn now to Jessica Berwick. Uh, a pretty new physician, uh, apart from her uh, thinking that uh, Jessica may have some interesting thoughts, having grown up around all of this, uh, Jessica's now in healthcare. And one of my first questions, and we talked about this in preparing, is whether these issues that Don has raised seem very near to you, distant to you, um, as you kind of think about, uh, you know, where you've jumped in uh, to medicine, kind of what resonates for you? you uh, around some of the points that Don has made. Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, thank you, Madge. Uh, first, I just wanted to say it's a real honor to participate in this event. Um, I've, I, I also just want to let you know I've talked through some of these issues with my colleagues, and, and I want to be clear that um, as I talk about this, I'm invoking some of their experiences, too. So, um, you know, when I first, the first four times I read the speech, I think uh, 
one of the things that started to strike me the most was about the to the idea of listening. And I, you know, I think it's important to start by saying I, um, as as we've talked about before, I feel quite protected. I think. Um, in my job as a hospitalist, um, perhaps more than some of my colleagues, and maybe that's partly because I'm new at this. Um, this is my third year as a hospitalist. But um, with respect to the metrics and, and um, measurements, I, what I feel is that in hospital medicine, um, I am, a, I am for, I think, several different reasons, sort of protected more than, for example, my primary care colleagues. I, I trained in primary care, and I think I saw firsthand in my training um, what some of those, uh, some of the drive towards measurement has done to um, to the primary care environment. And I frankly, and people should feel free to disagree with me, I'm sure they will, um, I frankly just don't feel that particular pressure as much. But what strikes me is is about our ability to listen to the, to the people we're interacting with. And as um, uh, Dad, if I can call you that, as, as you talk about um, in your in your forum speech, this idea that we're really listening and available to engage in a real in a totally human level with our patients—that's what—that's where I see barriers, um, big barriers, big big problems, ways in which Era Two isn't working as you describe it. Um, so I wanted to give share two examples. Um, and, and then talk for a second about what some of the things that come to mind as barriers in my experience. So the first example is one that I've um, shared with you, Madge, before about a patient for whom that I recently took care of on, when I was on service who um, had acute kidney injury, pretty dramatic acute kidney injury on top of the underlying kidney disease and needed a renal biopsy for full evaluation. It was really appropriate to do a renal biopsy. So she was approached, um, and the documentation all said that she had refused the biopsy. Um, and then when I met with her, you know, the first time I met her, I, I understood that there had been some reluctance. So I said, you know, how, how do you feel about a renal biopsy? And she said, I, I don't want that. And then I just asked one more question, which was, why not? And she explained that the first procedure, the first time she'd had a renal biopsy, felt like surgery. She said surgery without anesthesia. So I, I asked her, you know, how, how did how would she feel if we could make her comfortable for the biopsy? And she said, oh, absolutely, no problem. If you can make me comfortable, that's no problem. I'm happy to have it. And and even after that conversation, it struck me that still um, there were several other providers who went into the room and came out telling me, despite my having documented that she had we'd had this conversation, that she was still refusing. And in fact, her story hadn't changed at all. Um, so it was just such a striking moment of our failure to ask the one more question, to listen and engage in a way to, that would allow us uh, to deliver the care that she wanted and was appropriate. Um, the, the second instance is a similar one, although it, um, I, 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 will, I should preface it by saying I didn't behave as though I, in a way that I really wish that I had. Um, and I think it is illustrative, it's a bit embarrassing, but it's illustrative of this, of this similar problem. Um, I took care of a gentleman just this past week who at some point said to me he was admitted with hypertensive crisis. We'd been trying to adjust his blood pressure medications, which he had decided to stop taking at home. And he said to me, nobody here in the hospital understands the way my body works. For other people, more blood pressure medications help. For me, that doesn't help. It makes things worse. And um, what it would take in order to understand his full sort of model of uh, his explanatory model, his life experience, his prior experience with medication, what exactly were the symptoms that he was identifying and what did they correlate with. There were a bunch of barriers, um, and I'm not excusing this, but there are a bunch of reasons why it, it wasn't feasible for me. It didn't feel feasible for me to sit down with him and understand all of that in order to give him the care that he wanted and that was appropriate. Um, so those are two examples that strike me just as I sit and um, think about the, the forum speech and the message that you're, you're um, sort of putting on the table, Dad. In terms of why this all happens, I think, you know, some of my colleagues I think are a lot more articulate than I am on this, but um, one of my, one of my uh, friends said, to me the other day that he, he, he described it as um, 
providers trying to overcome poorly defined systems and coming up with workarounds to mitigate costs of uh, poorly defined systems that that leads to you know um, a, a workload that feels unmanageable a lot of the time that maybe isn't about just the number of patients we have but about systems that aren't designed to move things along smoothly that don't prioritize the the um, patient-centered humanistic care that we all want to provide. Um, and and I think there's a bunch of different reasons for that. We can talk more about that later on, if that makes sense. But um, I did want to just take a second, Madge, also to talk about the, the metrics piece of things from the outpatient perspective. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, a very familiar story to a lot of people. So I, I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they didn't already know. But um, one of my close friends described an experience as a medical director of a, of a healthcare system, described the experience of, um, of uh, tracking A1Cs and hemoglobin A1Cs and tracking blood pressures. And he described the, the frustration um, and the sort of tension that, that comes up when he takes a, gets a new patient, someone referred, their insurance has changed, they come into him from a different system. They had a hemoglobin A1C measured two weeks ago, and you can see it in the printout that they bring him, and it says that their hemoglobin A1C is 6.3. But they have a diagnosis of diabetes in their chart, and his system doesn't have a way of drawing in that outside record to reflect that that this patient has an updated A1C. And his time is spent wondering whether to order a test that is not indicated, that that is unnecessary, is wasteful, uh, or whether to to do it just to make the numbers look better, um, and and I think that's that's there are tons of stories like that when we think about how the how the metrics are impacting the physician's ability to deliver care and the morale and and all of the things that you're describing. So um, there's obviously many more stories like that, but but uh, those are just some of my thoughts as I uh, as I sort of hear what you're describing, Dad, and, and think about the, the speech that you gave. Thanks so much, uh, Jessica, and I think each of your stories is sort of almost a parable or um, emblematic of of uh, what's going on, and I welcome the audience's thoughts as they even think about, you know, not asking that one additional question or, you know, that uh, seemingly impossible situation of somebody new coming into the system and not being able to kind of marry those things in a way that makes uh, sense, the information. Don, you had some thoughts. Yeah, just a qu- question for Jess. I mean, one of my one of the things that moves me toward arguing we really need a new contract here, new new ethos, is uh, erosion of morale. I watch Jessica's dedication, her her real joy in being a doctor, but I worry, and some of the data are worrisome. Jess, do you have any observations from you, your friends, your colleagues about morale and joy in work, or or is it things things pretty okay still right now? You know, one of my friends said yesterday as I was chatting with him about this, and I think he's absolutely right that. Um, and you've said this before, the, our, my goals, the, the things that motivate me in medicine are still, um, and partly because I'm a new doctor, I suppose, are still uh, the central to what I do. Um, but it's not, I, absolutely I see morale eroded with the, the workload and the things that stand between um, me taking care, me and, and my ability to sit down and hear the whole story and understand who I'm who I'm working with and why what they what what I can do to help in their life to make their life better and to make them well. Um, so I see morale eroding all around me for sure, absolutely, and it's not hard for me to imagine that it will happen for me as well. Um, and I think that makes the work that you're doing that much more important. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, both of you. And we're going to turn to the chat, and, uh, you know, some of you have already started uh, to float in some comments and observations. Um, Again, many, many different issues here, and um, Jessica was surmising about what are some of the things that are interfering uh, with these more careful inquiries and uh, interactions with patients. Uh, We could all start to fill in the amount of distractions, perhaps, from some of the things that Don is talking about. Would love your thoughts on that. I'm going to ask Don one more quick question, um, just to sort of feed in one more thing. Um, 
many people would share your concerns but might also feel like hey that's not i'm not the one driving this i'm in a i'm kind of trapped in in a system that wasn't necessarily of my making uh i don't know if that's how jessica and her generation feel but uh people might feel uh all the some of the ways of shifting things that they're not in the position it's many times people feel in their jobs you know i didn't make the rules uh, I'm now kind of stuck kind of in some of this. Any thoughts on that at all? I think that's a kind of universal problem, but this healthcare system that has now grown up, particularly all the measures and all the metrics and things tied to payment and new models, et cetera, I can imagine people having a hard time to say, how do we come back from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand. I warned you that I was sending this out. I know I'm out of a limb. John Weeks is uh, is, uh, is chatting in his uh, concern that I'm like yelling at a patient who's about to leave the room about all the things they need to be healthy. Uh, I understand that. Take a yoga class. Take right? a yoga class. Um, it's all all hands on deck here. I mean, so so the way I think about it is first there are individual personal behaviors. You just heard Jessica describe a couple which would model a different view. We have 300,000 students in the IHI Open School. We have thousands of people come to IHI meetings. Every single person counts, and there's a little bit here of yes, you can. There's a, there's a, the next time you talk to a patient, the next time you engage in a decision, ch- check out the assumption base behind it and see if maybe there's a chance to try something different that would be more, I'll say, more joyous for you as a caregiver. I think there's a political side to this. I won't back away from that. There, 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 there's going to have to be political courage around setting in place rule bases that um, limit greed, that uh, restore transparency, that do some of the things I'm talking about, and your voters, you're, you you have everybody listening to this has a vote. You know, can you begin to think about how to use, to the extent you're a political person, that I think that those of you on the line who are trainee, training, if you're the curriculum director of a residency training program or, uh, you know, associate dean in a medical school or nursing school, what would you do with this? How, how, what, what, new, what new course can you think of? That will begin to migrate the way we think and talk. Um, there are there are organs of, of uh, public dis- discourse, uh, op-eds, and, and, and meetings. It, to, I'm trying to. I am. I'm raising the bar here. I'm saying we, 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 we if we don't drop back and examine and begin to ask about the the assumptions behind these behaviors, they're going to continue. Right now, Eratu's in the driver's seat. No question in my mind. Just watch how many hoops Jess Gusto and her colleagues have to jump through. But you know. If we don't start, we won't finish, and that, that's that's the best I can do right now. Okay. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Jessica, for setting the stage and some of your initial thoughts. Um, John, just remind uh, anyone who's not entirely sure uh, how you can participate in the chat. Thanks. Yeah, please make sure that your questions and comments are deli- uh, directed to all participants in the chat. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. So uh, let's see. Stephanie is in the studio here. Um anyone in the UK with a similar vision. They don't want to emulate the US. <laughs> um, and uh, somebody is curious, Jessica, maybe, well, well let's, uh, what, what does moral era look like and maybe uh, sound like for you as a hospitalist uh, on uh, nocturnal service? Um, well, let me try that one out. Let's start with that. What do you think moral era looks like from, from your job? This is for me? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> any other nocturnist on this call? Um, <laughs> um, what does the moral era look like as a hospitalist? You know, I, what I see, I see a bunch of comments that have come in on the chat that are asking about, um, you know, the, the bigger team um, and the case management, the, the social work, the, the, all of the various players, the multidisciplinary team. And when you ask about the moral era uh, as a hospitalist, to me it's about the multidisciplinary I mean, I think it's about the multidisciplinary team. It's about figuring out how to put all of the resources that we have um, in a really, really complex and opaque system to be, how to bring those resources to bear for every single patient. And one of the things that always blows my mind is when we have really particularly complex cases that have social dimensions that are, or legal dimensions, that are above and beyond the sort of average complexity, which, by the way, is, I think, higher than it used to be, um, 
I sit in a room, and I, I think I, we've talked about this before, Dad. I sit in a room with a social worker, a lawyer from the hospital's um, uh, general counsel, with the nursing, with the nurse, with the nurse supervisor, with about ten people. And what that those ten people, what we as a group can do to try to take care of the really complex situations always blows my mind. But we don't do that for every patient because we, because we couldn't, because that's not feasible. So that, I think, is if, you, if, you really, if we really listen to the patient and we combine that with a multidisciplinary kind of approach with all the resources we have, I think that's, that's, the, moral, that's, the, that's the moral era. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know how, what that looks like in practical terms, but um, it, it feels like that's, that, that's at least mm-hmm. part of the answer. I thank you, and I think that speaks to a few comments. Somebody said it sounds like the MD needs a village, uh, which is, I think, one of the things, uh, Don, you would agree that we're trying to transition to, that this is not just a physician-centric yeah. uh, system. Somebody asked if you might speak a little bit more to the idea of care coordination. You kind of uh, sort of move from era one, era two, sort of thinking a little bit about physician culture. Uh, we're in this now care coordination culture, and yet we're also in this highly scrutinized care coordinator. Those two things are almost intention in a way, uh, with more team members, and yet everyone is being scrutinized. My deep belief is that uh, people in healthcare, on the most, for the most part, not everyone, but you know, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, receptionists, managers—they're really trying hard to do to do the right thing. The problem is the design of the system in which they're trapped. That—that's one of the fun. I, I think to my dying day, I'll think about that. A design issue is key. Jessica correctly says we better be a team. We can't meet these needs soloists. By the way, when I was trained in era one, maybe occasionally teams were mentioned, but mostly it was it's your patient, Dr. Berwick. You you have to know everything. It has to be in your brain. Um, so the, the, the era three thinking would, I think, uh, open up the questions about what creates a team. How do you get to be in a room that Jessica's describing with 11 people surrounding a patient to help them? What has to happen to payment? What has to happen to, to transparency? What has to happen to communication? What has to happen to behaviors? And, and it's, it's a, it's, you can imagine an environment in which team would be more likely to, to, to take place. For professions, I particularly call out in my speech, guild behaviors aren't helpful. When, when, when we're having wars about scope of practice, we're not asking the right question. The right question is, how can everybody contribute everything they possibly can? And we need guilds. We need physician lobbyists and physician professional societies to back down and say, welcome. If you can help, we're going we're gonna to change the whole theory of scope of practice to make sure everybody gets to do the very best they can. And that by, doesn't just apply to, to physicians, that applies to others. Okay, thank you. I want to also just remind everybody that the chat is yours when the show concludes today. You can download it. You'll be prompted to do so, but it's also posted to our archive page the next morning. And I want, I'm mentioning that in part because there's a lot of very, very thoughtful ideas coming through on this chat, people also referencing a number of things that they're trying in their own organization. So this is a very research, excuse me, rich resource for all of you. Um, Jessica, somebody just asked a question which I do think is an interesting one, and perhaps you saw this one, is what do you, it's back to that issue, because I think that story is so compelling, of the, the patient who supposedly didn't want the biopsy, but then it was okay with just a few more questions and probes. And I, I know you don't want to over-speculate on you know, what's going on there, but I think somebody is asking, why aren't we listening uh, to patients? Is it that people are hurried? Are they distracted? Uh, as you kind of look around at your colleagues, are people impatient? Uh, are they uncomfortable having some of these conversations? What do you think? Um, I, man, I wish I knew the answer to that question. But, I, I, you know, the closest, some, some, some reflections, um, and I don't know how to prioritize them, but here's a couple of reflections. One is that I am taking care of 17 patients today. I had 19 yesterday, um, and I have the easiest job in the hospital by far. Um, so, uh, for one, it, there's a lot of people. E- each of my patients, almost every one of them, is is complex. They have a lot of medical problems, and of course, they have their all of the social and, in some cases, psychiatric issues on top of that. So that's the that's one issue. I suspect that's a smaller piece of, of the problem. I think 
um, when I think about the things that stand that that take up my time in the day, uh, this is and this is really, I mean, jaw dropping to me every day. Uh, I I spent probably 20 minutes yesterday printing my typed notes, going, trying to find which printer they had come out on, um, in order to then go try to find the green paper chart that belonged to the patient that wasn't in the, the sort of bin it was supposed to be in, um, in order to put my paper note into the paper chart of the patient. Okay. So that's one example of the things that are happening and a day that, you know, that's time I could have spent talking to a patient. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, you know, I, I'm, there's a doc, there's a, there's requirements for documentation that means that I spend a lot of time every day um, writing down things that are really important for communication, but often that's redundant because my house staff have also written those things. Um, but also doing things like making sure, making triple checking that in every note I have a family history documented, including in my 95-year-old um, who came in with a urinary tract infection because uh, the rules require that for the bill to be approved, there's a family history. So it's it, there's layers and layers of it, and I think these are well-recognized um, sort of time sinks for many, many people. But I, I think they're really important barriers to spending. That's time we could have spent with patients. Interesting. Yeah, very good, good examples. Thank you. Don, uh, I, I want to ask you something, uh, just to flip back to measures, and I hope we'll do more on this. Uh, next week, I've got an interesting program looking at data for quality improvement, and that's also going to touch on uh, measures that really add value. This is a complex uh, arena here now in which perhaps people are picking up various batons uh, to try and streamline. But when you think about uh, any groups of measures or categories or types of measures that you think uh, we could begin to let go of uh, in favor of something else. Could you speak to that a little bit more? What, where, where might we go with this? I, I will. I think that the um, one of my premises has, is a little, more, um, a little more forceful, which is to, to set a limit. I think that I think that we have in, I call it intemperate measurement now, which is as bad as intemperate healthcare, because there's never been a budget that no one's ever said we'll allow ourselves the following amount. And so what we've had is more and more and more and more, and it's insane right now. It really is. It's driving people uh, out of their, uh, you know, away from patients. I guess is the best way to say it. So I'm, I'm making a rather arbitrary argument. Let's set a goal here, and the, I do put the goal in the ground. Twenty, you know, one, three out of four mandated measurements that we currently use should go away. We should commit to it. I say within the next, I'd say cut them in half in three years and half again in five, but even that's slow for me. So I say without that kind of discipline, we're not going to do this. We're just going to keep eating away at edges without changing the fundamental dynamics. If we did that and we said, hey, we got a problem now, we have a budget, it's one, three out of four of the mandated measurements we use now have got to go away, what are we going to do? Well, let's start to make a list. Redundant metrics, which are close to the same thing but not quite the same thing, stop it. And that's, you know, I'm happy to see what AHIP and, and uh, the, the Merck's health insurance plans and, and uh, CMS have done. They said we're going to try to stop being different when we're trying to measure the same thing. That's good. I think that Porter and, and Lee's argument about moving toward outcome is a good, it's a good discipline. If we, had, if we said if it's not an outcome measure, it's got to bear a lot more burden before we actually use it, that would be good. I think there are there are, are micro process measures which they it's tick the box stuff. Yes, we measured this or we tested that. I don't really think those help. You the, the people that disagree with me say, oh look, when we start to measure it, people do it. I say that's the problem. You actually create compliant tick the box behaviors, not just measures. So I actually think this is a great task for America to take on over a six month period. Maybe the National Quality Forum could help us. But you get you you get a budget. You take away three out of four. That's the requirement. Now, what's the rule base on which we could go ahead and do that? I would posit, by the way, that if we did it, not a hair in anyone's head would be hurt, except maybe the measurement industry, and uh, we would end up with more valuable and more usable stuff. Anyone uh, on, on the program who's listening, if you have some thoughts on that as well, feel free to chime in in the chat about uh, some of the uh, measures that you might see uh, are, are not adding so much value. Don? Yeah, a chat just came in from Jacqueline, Jacqueline Poppin. 
that, that's a very important point. Uh, there is a, a, a developing sector in the measurement movement toward PREMS and PROMS, patient-reported experience measures, patient-reported outcome measures. Th- these, of course, come, they have a long history, but they're actually being brought now to a pretty good form, and the OECD has an advisory group that I serve on, which is considering recommending to OECD nations that at the national metric level, they they begin to use PREMS and PROMS as the core. And that makes some sense to me. If, you have, if I really could only measure one thing, I think I'd do what Jessica did. I'd go ask the patient, say, how's it going? And any way we can get that going, I think will help us navigate toward toward quality. Since there's a whole legacy thing going on that's gone through my head about all this when I thought, think about process measures, one of the first things, Don, that I felt that I started to understand about quality improvement was that process measures were less about checking off boxes, but they were uh, they were in design to sort of start shaping behavior and culture change. And without that step, you weren't really educating and people weren't sort of going through something together to sort of realize that they were actually starting to function differently, uh, all in the name of patient care. Are we at a different place with that mm-hmm. now? And I'd be curious from Jessica's uh, point of view. I mean, how many – she's talked about a few boxes she's <laughs> checking off, and, et cetera. But that sense of um, – I mean, you know, just any take any process uh, measure, you know, prevent how you take out a, you know, central line or, you know, prevent infection. Um, not, not doing the same thing that they used to do? I'd love to hear Jessica's view. Let me yeah. just clarify. So, um, process measures that said I did step one, two, three. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I, I'd like to suggest we go back to learning as the goal. So when you're improvement, the whole idea is learning is the is the dynamic that leads to the change that you can test and then learn from and do it better tomorrow. Sometimes the learning is that didn't work. Sometimes it did. And we're very familiar with learning. We do it in all the things we love: gardening or knitting or or basketball. Well, if you think about the learning process, there's a result. Like when basketball, it's like did did the ball go through the hoop? That's an outcome, okay? And you might if that can be the requirement. You know, you can't win the game if the ball doesn't go through the hoop. Fine. The process measures though are where all the learning's occurring. Did I hold my hands properly? Did I follow through on my shot? Did I did I commit a foul? The, so and and when you're in the learning process, you're avid for that. You you want to. I mean, you want the tapes and you want to see, study the tapes eight times because it's going to help you know how to shoot the ball better. In healthcare, we need much more of that. We need much more aware of what's going on so we can shoot the ball better. I'm not against that. That's good. It's the top-down requirement to say, did you hold your hand in the right position? It, it, it's the wrong way to go. So so I think is I think this recalibration toward the th- measuring the, th- the, the effects we really care about, because that's what we're trying to get done, and then without all this mandating and, and, and uh, requirement, beginning to develop a culture of curiosity about, about our work, the process level stuff. It's not the measure metrics that's the problem. It's the mandating of measurement, which changes the game from try to get better to get out alive. Jessica, do you agree? Does that make sense uh, for, from where, where you uh, sit and stand and do your job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And of course, you are a master dad at, at saying this in this sort of really big picture, visionary kind of way. And I, and I'm at this at this stage uh, anyway, thinking much more on the level of the interactions I have on a day to day and what I see in the hospital. And I, like I think I said a little bit before, I I feel largely insulated from the process metrics that are happening in medicine in general at the moment. So I'm very much aware of them, but as a hospitalist, I don't feel um, like I come up against them very often. But this all makes perfect sense if you think about, you know, my training in primary care and a colonoscopy, you know, whether or not a colonoscopy is done, that's a process. That's a, that's a process measurement because nobody cares whether or not the colonoscopy was done. You care whether or not you saved somebody's life or um, suffering from uh, cancer. So uh, I, I, you know, it, it, it all resonates, but not in a, not in a I guess suppose not in a personal way as a hospitalist now. Um, but the, the process metric from where I am right now, I, I know that in many ways nobody cares. Nobody, it's not the point. Um, but but and, and so the outcomes measurements are what are central. But, uh, you know, what you're saying, what you described, Dad, in terms of learning about what we're doing and getting better and better at what we're doing in order to deliver the outcome that everybody wants makes total sense to me. 
Thanks very much. John. Hi. Uh, yeah, just wanted to remind everybody about the IHI's 17th Annual Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office Practice and the Community, which is a mouthful, but we call it the Office Practice Summit around these parts. It's taking place on March 20th to the 22nd down in Orlando, Florida, and it promises to be a uh, dynamic conference, and uh, together with expert faculty, you can explore how individuals and communities can have an impact on improving care, promoting health, and lowering costs within our changing healthcare system, and continue the conversation that started today. So uh, visit IHI.org slash summit for more information. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Don, I don't know if you see the con- the uh, comment. I think that's from a Dan uh, asking clinician what measures matter to you. I think this is... <laughs> <laughs> what a great idea. Well, right. And these are, you know, um, I feel free actually on the call today what measures matter to you. Maybe this, this is the kind of inventory people need to start uh, taking and let this bubble up, I think it would be probably very freeing for a lot of folks who feel kind of strangled uh, uh, by this. So uh, if, if there are any measures that matter to you uh, that you want to uh, chime in about, feel free. Uh, a question for you, Don. Um, you talked a little bit about you know NQF and other bodies that might start to, and AHIP and CMS maybe doing some work on measures. Who else are you hoping maybe kind of uh, heeds the call as you think about you know your audiences and uh, might be kind of listening to some of your remarks right now? I mean, folks in maybe a position to kind of uh, exert some different kind of leadership. Well, the mandated metrics are coming from payers and from regulators uh, uh, largely, and, uh, you know, it would be great to have them take a deep breath on this. It also happens in, in management. Uh, so at the, at the organizational level, um, I, I sometimes visit places where I go to the Board of Trustees meeting and what the Board of Trustees gets to its quality agenda, and they open this massive book with grids and happy faces and, you know, smiley faces and not smiley faces and red-yellow green stuff, and I know they're well-intended. They mean, you know, they say, oh, we're really watching this place very closely, but actually the, the, their eyes are glazing over, and there is a, there's just a surfeit of, of these charts and graphs. They're not reading them. They're not using them. No one's acting on them, and this workforce have to produce them, and so I'd say at the organizational level, look really hard. Uh, you know, iChai has the Leadership Alliance, 42 organizations that are working together on triple aim, better care, better health, lower cost. I, I hope they're moving to the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a breaking the rules week in which we asked them to find rules that didn't help anybody at all and break them and then report in on what they did, as long as they didn't go to jail. And uh, I think the number, I don't have it exactly, but I think the 42 organizations produced 350 rules that existed that, that were there. They were taking up the time of people like us. Jessica and didn't help anybody at all, and they were they were working together to stop them. I think hopefully that group is going to publish that metric is only one view of that, but I think I think organizations uh, could could do a much better job. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Lots of interesting comments uh, and, and people really kind of resonating that maybe process measures have started. Uh, not only the board of trustees eyes glazing over, but staff themselves oh, yeah. and uh, people kind of losing sight uh, of the goal. So I think that particular issue is resonating, and that may be an area that people can start to do some real pruning. Someone did ask, chatted in the question, what about a process measure that you know is connected to outcomes like hand washing? Well, again, this is, has the, this is the use of the measure. Sure, of course, if you're uh, you know, in a hospital ward and you, you want to keep people from getting infected, you might continually ask the question, are we washing our hands? Could we get some help here? Someone, could we have a, a secret observer tell us, are we washing our hands? That's not a mandated measure. That's not driving us crazy. That's learning. That's show me the tape stuff. And we need more of that, not less of that. So the, the, the real poet on this, and for me, is Brent James at Intermountain Healthcare, who constantly makes the point that in a proper information environment, the care is continually generating knowledge and information which the workforce wants and puts to use to make its care better. A local loop of, of measure, yeah, measuring, assessing, hearing, feeding back, testing, that's good. But when you have a bunch of docs spending their time filling out forms and sending them to some office they never meet to get a report they never see, that's waste. Okay, thank you. All right, let's do some kind of wrapping up right now. Um, and I think, uh, well, I'm going to ask you, Jessica, any final remarks that you might like to make. And I also recall that in planning uh, the program that you did reflect a little bit on uh, people that you know who work in primary care 
who are also feeling kind of a real squeeze, uh, perhaps a little bit more of the, <laughs> uh, you know, the vices closing in uh, than perhaps you might be. And if there's anything you want to say about that, uh, you know, even as we start to wrap up. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Um, I was just thinking about one of my one of my closest friends telling me a story that this uh, friend of mine um, who's a medical director telling me about the the measurements producing the following effect. A patient comes in whose blood pressure is 170 and they're not they don't seem totally engaged with their care and another patient comes in whose blood pressure is 142 and and the attention that could be given based on the metrics the sort of the the measurements that are in place now on the patient whose blood pressure is 142 because it's lower hanging fruit and um, very little attention given in the, the way the system set up now to measure an outpatient, the outpatient setting anyway. The marginal benefit of getting that person engaged, whose one blood pressure is 170, getting them engaged in their care and getting their pressure down by 10 points, as opposed to this binary system where they're either at goal or they're not. So that was a story that sort mm. of stuck with me. Yep. But I think you know the 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 sort of in kind of wrap up thought I'm having is just reflecting on a prior um, WIHI uh, discussion with um, Dr. Montori and um, I think Casey from Mayo. Yeah. Um, we're talk- she was talking about Casey at some point was talking about um, a, a couple of questions that could guide um, uh, clinicians who want to offer the kind of care that we really want to deliver. And one of the questions she asked is. Not um, what can I do for you, but what are you doing when you're not sitting here with me? And I, it just, it was a very striking question for me, reminding me something that, I've, that I think we all want to do. Um, and and we, and as a hospitalist, that that listening piece that I started out by talking about, that question just keeps kind of echoing in my head today. Um, and I, I think that's at the core of it. I think we all want to deliver that care, um, and it's just a question of how we. Uh, kind of push to the side the things that prevent us from delivering that care and prioritize, appropriately prioritize um, the things that we do that allow us to really um, engage and, and make health more and better. Wow. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been just a real honor to have you part of the program. I hope you'll come back, whether your dad is here or not, uh, and uh, share as things uh, continue to evolve, wishing you the best um, in your work and really appreciated your fine uh, contributions. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, and, you know, you're mentioning uh, Victor Montori and Casey Bomer uh, on the program on shared decision-making at the end of January. I'd love to say it was by design that I've had all these programs related to one another. In some ways, they sort of fell into place, uh, starting off in January with what matters to you, shared decision-making at the end of January. We're talking about uh, measures that matter here, Don, and, you know, really kind of (laughs) resetting our compass in a way. And then next week, we'll we're talking about data um, a- again, trying to really handle this stuff. So we are guiding uh, what we truly need. So some of your parting thoughts, Don, um, as we move forward. Uh, well, my thoughts are dominated by uh, listening to Jessica again. What a pleasure it is to be on the on the show with her. Uh, this is hard. If we we really, I'm arguing to move to a new mind frame, and that's hard. But it gets a lot easier when you see Jessica and her generation and the young. And I think the cell that John Weeks was worried about is a lot easier when the youth get 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 the steering wheel. And I I think a lot of us can focus on on the on the young people that are honoring medicine by coming into it, and uh, and give them a chance to really do what they know is right. And I think that that'll guide us to the third era faster than than any other way I know. Well, thank you very much, Don and Jessica, both. I just want to read these two other comments on the chat. Somebody thought maybe this could be framed as moral together era, Mm. which is a nice one. And then somebody wants to be the booking agent for the Berwick and Berwick speaking (laughs) tour. So uh, it all started here, and uh, you you, you were here and part of this audience. So we hope to get both Don and Jessica back again uh, separately and together. So thank you both so much. And I want to really thank the 
audience. Uh, and uh, just don't forget, you can download all this stuff when you get off the show today, and you'll also find it on our website tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, as I've been saying, on February 25th, also 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Making Data Work for Quality Improvement, Len DeVolio and Kate Armite. Really interesting show. Len's got a lot of uh, research uh, he's going to bring to bear in that discussion, so we hope you'll uh, tune, up, tune in for that. And again, check out the website tomorrow, and you can also find the podcast on iTunes tomorrow. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes. And even better, John uh, has this great suggestion, write a review on iTunes. That uh, is, is another way to show your love. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org and always feel free to suggest future show topics. So it takes a village to produce WIHI, my wonderful guests, you, the audience, and then all these folks here who make it possible, including John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. I want to also thank Stephanie um, Gary Garfunkel this week for her help. And Lakshman Chwami's uh, been listening in, and he's been tweeting during the show uh, at Lakshman Chwami. And you also you can um, Swami, and you can also uh, go to at the IHI and look at some of his tweets and pick up on that as well. So thank you, Lakshman. It's my privilege to host a program, as you know, that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, have a great afternoon. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.